So Money, episode 396, Kate Gardner. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. My So Money team's recently become a fan of a company called Realty Shares that's disrupting the real estate finance industry with their crowdfunding platform. Here's some investment advice brought to you by our April sponsor, RealtyShares.com. Haley from New York writes, how do I invest in real estate in California? Well, Haley, one easy way to invest in any one of the 50 states is through a real estate crowdfunding website. There are a few, but RealtyShares.com has the lowest investment minimums. Realty Shares allows accredited investors to invest as little as $5,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the U.S. What's great about Realty Shares is that all of the real estate deals are sourced and vetted by experienced investment professionals. Thousands of investors are using the platform to browse through deals and invest in minutes. Of course, keep in mind that all investments are risky and may lose value. Past performance is not indicative of future results. For this month only, when you sign up at RealtyShares.com slash SoMoney and link a bank account, the company will transfer $50 into your linked bank account. Visit RealtyShares.com slash SoMoney to begin today. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. How are you? Thanks so much for joining me. This is so nice to know that, you know, you like coming back to the show. A lot of you have been writing in recently talking about how the show has been changing your life. You've been encouraged to negotiate your salary, transition your careers, save more, invest. So I feel like, uh, you know, we're, we're making progress here on So Money. And I really love hearing from you because it's validation that this show must go on. And today we're going to talk about how you land a career in social media, or better yet, how to be your own boss in the social media landscape. I mean, think about it. How many, how many, be honest, how many hours a day do you spend on Facebook plus Twitter plus Instagram, maybe a little Snapchat? I mean, if you could get paid for all those hours to be on all those channels, now that's so money. And today's guest has figured it out. She's an audience engagement specialist who is also the co-founder and partner at AVG. It's a creative studio that works with media companies specifically and media brands to help them redefine their digital futures. And that for her and her team means guiding them through the social media landscape and world. And they spend a lot of time themselves on all those familiar platforms, Facebook, etc. Kate Gardner is our special guest today. She is also very cool, the executive director of The List. Have you heard of The List? It's a platform for women in business, technology, and media. It's very popular in New York. And Kate has worked with big media names from Al Jazeera International to Newsweek, Voice of America, New York Public Radio, among many other major outlets. She's a member of the 2016 Forbes 30 Under 30. Congratulations, Kate. A 2015-2016 NextJ Fellow for the Radio, Television, and Digital News Association. She's also a young leader on the National Committee for U.S.-China Relations. She's a busy woman. 
With Kate, we want to learn how to clean up your mess on social media when you say the wrong thing. And hopefully none of you have experienced this, but a lot of important people with important jobs and a lot of audiences, namely media companies, executives at companies, have made boo-boos on social media. So how does she recommend they go about uh, repairing that? Turning a journalism degree, which Kate graduated from Medill at Northwestern, into an entrepreneurial career. And the challenges that come with teaching people, especially women, how to negotiate for more in the workplace. Here's Kate Gardner. Kate Gardner, welcome to So Money. I cannot wait to learn from the genius that is your brain. Welcome to the show. Hi, Farnish. How are you? Good. So a little background, listeners. Kate and I met when I think it was a rainy day in New York at the Soho House, because that's how you roll. Um you invited me there for tea. Uh, we've been connected through a mutual friend. She's like, I think you would like Kate. You should meet her. So we did. And, and I thought you were fabulous. And I was so impressed. I had no idea you were as young as you are. I mean, I thought maybe you were like, I don't know, because you have such an impressive resume. I was like, she's at least 30. Um, <laughs> And meanwhile, I'm a 30 with an amazing skincare regimen. Like he didn't look 30, but I was like, I was like, she has to be a, at least a contemporary. And little did I know you're like still in your twenties killing it. So let's start there, killing it. Um, <laughs> but not so morbidly. I mean, you are an entrepreneur, which is phenomenal. And more so, you know, you are just recently named a Forbes 30 under 30, um, a media, uh, really a transformer in, in the world of media and technology. Many, many companies, big companies and powerful companies trust you to advise them on their digital strategy. Why did they, why did they come to you? How did, how did you develop such a reputation for yourself at such a young age and have wielded so much power for yourself? <laughs> um, Huh. I guess so. I I was a journalist. I wanted to be a journalist from when I was in high school, I think. And uh, I graduated from college, went to a tiny newspaper. Uh, the newspaper went bankrupt because it was a newspaper. And I ended up going to grad school. And when I went to grad school, I was at Medill uh, in Chicago. And this startup called Twitter started to happen. Uh, and for a good little while there, I was at Medill, um, which is the Twitter handle for the school, uh, much to their chagrin, uh, which was kind of funny. And then uh, for a while after that, you know, I was using it to meet people. And I think, you know, Twitter really helped me to reach out far, far beyond the reaches of uh, my you know, hometown, which is Chicago. Um, and when I was at WBEZ, the Chicago Public Radio, it turned out that I like to do digital more than I like to do city desk reporting. Um, and then, you know, it, it just kind of spiraled from there. And I ended up working with a lot of major brands. I have a very traditional perspective on sort of the way news should be made, if not the, the way the stories should be made, I suppose, uh, not the way that the platform should be made. The platform's some pretty unorthodox um uh, go where the people are kind of a person, but it takes a minute to, for news, new organizations, especially those uh, who have sort of legacy infrastructures to adjust to the change. And so I started working with PBS NewsHour and then I went to Al Jazeera, excuse me. Um, and then I went to Al Jazeera and then, you know, it just, it's, 
it's it's a mixture of networking, I think, and just a sort of a confidence in the fact that the power of the old brand should carry across to the new platforms and, and that those two things don't need to be separated. And, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, going to the conferences, being in the right places and uh, talking to uh, a lot of gentlemen who probably uh, thought it was kind of funny that you know, somebody at 24, 25, 26, 27 uh, thought that I could advise them on the way that, you know, their legacy media organization should run. Um, but then uh, we kept proving them right, uh, or rather that I was right and that, you know, they needed to shift their strategies. And uh, I don't know, we've worked with 80-something companies since wow. then. Wow. So um, what, what are you proving to them that makes them go, oh yeah, she's on to something. Like what what are they what are they what are they not understanding that you're able to come in and really be the turnkey operator for and see well, have them see the results? Uh what they're looking for most of the time is someone to be able to tell their C suite that yes, they need to make an investment in digital distribution, or yes, they need to make an investment in a uh, new technology that's going to facilitate reporting and reporters. I think, you know, my focus is on getting the technology out of the way of the newsroom or making it an asset to the newsroom rather than making it something that's terribly onerous and very difficult for reporters who are ostensibly very good at their jobs, um, but who want, who, who uh, may not have had that resource. And I think, you know, mostly what I do is I speak in a very logical way um, to individuals who, you know, want to win a Pulitzer, but also uh, want to reach the contemporary millennial um, or someone even younger. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very pragmatic about ways to do that. And I think that that's what they're looking for. They're looking for, okay, you have this huge brand, uh, you have this tiny budget. <laughs> what can we do with those two things that's cheap and effective? and facilitates traditional storytelling um, while uh, keeping with our uh, ethics and morals and all that good stuff and the new devices in the palms of everyone's hands or in centralized hubs online. So you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff, but it's also being super aware of, of platforms like Facebook and the impact that they're going to have um, online as well as uh, thinking about new ways to do storytelling on those mm. platforms. And so your job really demands that you're on the cutting edge of not just uh, media, but technology and social media specifically. Where do you see social media headed? I mean, today, 2016, it seems like the big, big, important platforms to be on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And so, and I'm seeing more brands on Snapchat. It's not just 16 uh-huh. year olds texting um, boob shots. It's like actual legit and um, valuable companies on there engaging. Uh, Gary okay. Vaynerchuk is someone I've interviewed and he talks about, you want to go where you can, uh, achieve audience arbitrage where uh-huh. there's a lot of audience, but not a lot of, um, marketers there yet. And so uh-huh. where's that next frontier? Uh, I think it depends. I think we're getting more and more narrow. Um, so, you know, I want 13 year olds in New Brunswick, Canada, or I want, uh, 100,000 uh, women who are active in their Rotary Club, you know, things like that um, are more uh, what 
uh, you're stuck looking for now. Um, and I do, I specialize in developing hyperconnected niche audience. So for example, we might not have a million readers, but we'll have a hundred thousand and every single one of them will come back to the website every day. So we're looking to build long-term committed audience around special, uh, subject area specificity. And then we're looking to do that across vertical. Um, and that can, that can be anything from a personal brand. So a specific reporter whose, whose tone or, or character you enjoy um, to a specific topic. So, you know, anything from knitting to race cars. Um, and then, you know, we're looking to figure out ways to use, use technical mechanics to replicate that across platforms. Um, And it's it's really listening to what the audience seems to want and then providing them resources in the places that they're going already. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the times that looks like very sensible partnerships. Um, A lot of the times that looks like um, sort of branded content relationships with with specific organizations. Um, And sometimes it's just it's it's about building a, a space where people feel safe enough to communicate honestly um, and civilly. Uh, and we focus really heavily on making sure that, that uh, from the beginning, the, the news organization or the nonprofit or the whoever um, is facilitating relationships between its members in a way that will lead to longevity and a, and a sort of a depth of relationship that um, I think people used to think that they had, at least with their hometown papers, Mm-hmm. Um, or their hometown radio station that has kind of gotten lost as we all seek these giant numbers as opposed to sort of uh, the more focused and loyal numbers. Uh, it's a very different way of going about things. Yeah. And I think when you think of social media, there's an inherent sense that, oh, well, I can talk to the masses. And obviously you can, but that isn't what you're saying. It sounds like that isn't necessarily the best strategy when you're trying to come across as authentic and come across as engaging and really connect and tell your story in a meaningful way. Um, what about, you know, the boo-boos that sometimes companies make and media companies in telling their story online and uh-huh. in, you know, you are limited on social media. You have only say 140 characters on Twitter. Um, and so how have you sometimes helped companies uh, clean up some messes, you know, or, and what's oh, the wait. best, what's the best <laughs> way, what's the best way to kind of get on the other side of a, of a mistake or something that comes across as like distasteful or confusing. Mm. That gets really complicated. Uh, it depends on, on how flexible the company is um, and whether or not they have a, a relationship with sort of experimentation and, and cultural movements. Um, we've had, I've had a variety of clients who probably would hate it if I brought up their past blunders. But uh, <laughs> one in particular I'm thinking of, we had a we had a huge, huge issue with a, a story that went viral. Um, and there's a limit to what you can do in terms of crisis comms in the face of the internet because stuff, you know, goes everywhere instantly. And I think sometimes what you really, what uh, in the immediate aftermath, what you have to do is, go out of your way to just kind of keep your mouth shut um, and your head down and minimize the, the amount of engagement you have with a story or with a situation. Um, and then the second thing that you do is this very strict postmortem, you know, okay, what happened? How did it happen? Who was involved in what happened? 
Um, then we go through a sort of an, uh, a rubric. Okay, if this is how this happened, how do we deconstruct it so that we have safeguards in place of this happening that are practical? I think, you know, there's a lot of highfalutin uh, and sort of posturing that happens after debacle. Um, and you kind of have to step back from the debacle and be like, okay, so on the one hand, we could make it so that every story has to go through 17 people. On the other hand, uh, or every tweet, you know, that, that's a popular one. Uh, every tweet should go through three people before it can get published. The meaning of a tweet in general, like a, a, a mediocre tweet to a, even a decent tweet, um, if it's correct, doesn't make much of a difference. It's when it's incorrect that you have a problem. Right. Um, so in, in those cases, what I'm trying to do is, is to make it so that there's a trusting relationship with the staff and the staff has an inherent uh, understanding that anything that they publish is on behalf of the entire company and reflects uh, either incredibly well on them or incredibly poorly on them. How do we deconstruct that into a policy that's practical and allows for some experimentation across platforms, but never reflects poorly on the brand? Um, And we go through that exercise a dozen times until everybody understands sort of what the perspective should be and how we can live with it going forward. That raises a really good point because we live in a culture now where everybody believes that they have a personal brand. And I think that's a a good belief if you know how to really um, nurture that and build that up. But if you're associated with a company that has its own brand, how do you, how do you have a, a social media image that, um, is yours and, and is people won't think that it, that they're going to read a tweet from you and it's necessarily an opinion or belief of your organization. I mean, obviously you can put that in your bio opinions are my own, Mm -hmm. my tweets are my own, but is that enough? I think it really depends um, on how actively and how you use social media. If you're using social media to engage with your friends, that's one thing. You're using social media to engage uh, with others who cover your beats or who are in your industry or are whatever related to that, that's quite the other. Um, and it, it varies a lot company to company. Um, my first step is always people read your your corporate guidelines. If you have a company handbook that, if you have a social media editor that, if you have you know some other grand poobah who really cares, it, just figure out what they have in terms of expectations, especially if they're aware of you on uh, social platforms. The next step is to just uh, have that consciousness and be and, and acknowledge that it's possible um, that it might not be appropriate for you to comment about politics in a public setting. Um, you are choosing, when you participate in social media, you're choosing to be part of a public forum. Um, and whatever you say will be used either for or against you uh, over the course of your career. Now, for the most of us, as long as you're very carefully part- nonpartisan, that doesn't really make a difference. Or as long as you're not uh, very clearly criticizing your employer, uh, it won't really make a difference. But um, the people who are going to get their feet to the fire the most often are people who are casual or incautious about the way that they post things. Um, in a public setting, uh, after say, you know, a few drinks <laughs> after a while, there's that too. Uh, one of, one of the most important things that I ever taught people to do is if you're, if you have a loose tongue, when you drink, leave your phone at home. Yes. And, to your friends. and Google before you tweet, 
That's another. <laughs> also a good. That's also a good idea. Uh, I think that the the one of the things that that I always have been cautious about is if I have I, I'm very rarely critical of anyone else, which makes me kind of boring um, on social media. But at the same time, it will never be held against me in the context of uh, you know a, a possible client relationship or you know in the long term if I went into a political situation or if I wanted to be an executive director or something that was bigger than you know my own company's it's 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 just uh it's good to proceed um thinking that you know your grandma's going to read everything um, yeah well that's a good point you have to think about where your goals are where you're headed where you want to head potentially how your social his your social media history could wow can you think about now like people run for president we look at you know where they're, sometimes we look at their taxes. Sometimes we look at, you know, where their donations come from. Sometimes they look at your tweets from 13 years ago now, if you're going <laughs> to, or however long, five years ago, someday 13 years. You know, I'm always looking for ways to save time. So I'm really excited about our next sponsor, Prep Dish. Prep Dish lets you enjoy whole foods based meals that are thoughtfully crafted to make the most of your budget, save you time, and surprise your taste buds. Prep Dish is a healthy subscription based meal planning service that takes the guesswork out of grocery shopping and meal prep when you want to eat well, but you're short on time. Each week, you receive an email that contains a grocery list and instructions for prepping your meals ahead of time, and it only takes two hours to prep a whole week's worth of meals, but it gets even better. Prep Dish is offering so many listeners a special offer of $4 for the first month of meal plans. It's only a dollar a week. Just go to prepdish.com slash so money and use my code so money, one word, when you sign up. Special diet? No problem. They also specialize in gluten-free, dairy-free, and paleo meal plans at no extra cost. That's prepdish.com slash so money and use my code so money for $4 for your first month. Does money come up in your day to day? I want to talk about money with you because this is the So Money Show, and all of our guests <laughs> are subjected to all these uncomfortable money questions. But you're brave, so I'm going to ask you um, sure. some things about money. Starting with your money philosophy, do you have like a financial philosophy, much like you have one, obviously, of a philosophy <laughs> for business and entrepreneurship and uh, your clients? I yeah. I wish it was as conservative. I, I wish I was as conservative with money as I am with uh, my social media. <laughs> <laughs> that would be how I would put it. Um, you know, I, I, I had a fortunate upbringing, um, and I think that uh, depending on how long you followed me on social media, you probably have learned that. Um, I enjoyed a lot of uh, traveling, and I. You know, my family has a a farm in the country outside of Chicago, and I'm there about half the year. Um, And and my parents were also very good with money, but um, they come from two different backgrounds. My dad is a save everything ever and live in a shoebox, and my mom is a, well, we have it, so we should enjoy it type (laughs) type of person. Right, live in the moment. Um, And I think... You know, I, I think it goes in phases. My relationship with money is, um, you know, you have to spend some of it to make it. Uh, you should be in the, and it's always worth spending money on an experience that you'll remember um, more so than it is to spend money on stuff. Um, but that's how I, I think that my relationship with it is is not not as sophisticated as I would like to 
have it be. And Mm -hmm. so that's actually something I'm in the midst of sort of exploring, like, what should I have been doing all of this time? And can Mm -hmm. I fix it? (laughs) Um, And I think it's it's interesting. One of the reasons that I chose one of my partners on my new venture is basically because he's so anti-me in terms of the way he relates to staff and the money and uh, resources and budgeting. Um, And, you know, it leads to a lot of pushback between the two of us on, on what we should be spending money on. But at the same time, for me, you know, I'm always, okay, this is the budget for the project. Let's spend $10,000 on a $10,000 project. And he's like, well, what if we cut it to eight and we kept two? And I'm like, what? The project costs $10,000. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's an, it's an interesting conversation to be having. You know, I'm a, I'm a single woman. I've always, almost always, anyway, been in, uh, been in a situation where it's financially independent uh, since college. Um, and so it's, it's just a bizarre, it is bizarre to me to have someone who actually cares about how I spend money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's been a fantastic new relationship in a lot of ways, even when it's like pushing every button I have, because there's, there's nothing as sensitive as being told that you shouldn't spend or you shouldn't, or we should do it this way versus mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Especially when you just haven't had anyone care in a long time. So when you were growing up on the farm, what was Mm -hmm. your first memory of money as a tool, a means to an end, uh, a a cool Mm -hmm. thing that you could earn? What was like a good like childhood memory around money? So so we moved to the farm actually at the end of high school. So before that, I lived on the south side of Chicago in a suburb called Homewood. Um, And before that, even we were in a suburb called Glenwood, which is actually my uncle is now the mayor of Glenwood. Um, and we would go, dad would take us on Saturdays to go get his shirt. Uh, and he would force us to be the person who went into the dry cleaners and got the shirts. And so this would be a huge exercise in counting. And I think we were like four. And so part of the problem that we would have was, you know, you're, after you go into the dry cleaners and you have successfully procured the shirts, you are too short to carry the shirts. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but, you know, at that time, it was like a big thing because it was definitely teaching us, you know, that simple chore. How do we go get stuff? How uh, and then what is the dollar related exchange for stuff that we want, uh, be it shirts or uh, my infamous library fine, uh, which often seemed to be, you know, something that would inhibit uh, you know, my college education, given how many library fines there were. Um, but, um, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be free if you found it at the library? Well, the book was free, but when you don't return it on time, oh. They, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so there's the truth, right? It's the late charges, right? Got it. Well, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah. And you know, that was, that was a big thing. Like I, I was like, you know, that goes on your credit report. Sometimes the library can choose to report, um, books and materials that never got returned and they I guess they attach a dollar value to that and it does happen sometimes it's rare but it can happen I you know I don't think that they particularly have that much revenge against like 12 year old me um and I I think really that's probably why my apartment is so full of books and why my room back at home are full of books it's because I'd rather buy them and just figure out that paying the ticket, ticket price is a better yeah <laughs> So, um, so then, um, 
So that was cool. So then you, so money wasn't really something that you had to worry about, which is cool. You know, I think that's, um, you recognize that. And then as you got older, this leap to entrepreneurship as a journalist, trained as a journalist, but then to be bold and brave enough in your 20s to say, I'm going to start my own thing. They don't teach you that in journalism, right? At least not where I went to Columbia and um, Medill is a phenomenal school. And so how did you feel brave to do that? Why did you think that was something that you could be successful at doing? It's funny to think of it as brave to me. Um, It was just kind of what was going to happen. Uh, so my dad's an entrepreneur. He runs a a law firm that's moderately successful in Chicago. Um, and from age 12 to about age 20, I worked for dad, uh, in his law firm. And we were kind of infamous for how, you know, I thought things should go and how he thought things should go and how I was, I was willing to argue with him versus a lot of his staff. And, uh, you know, I, I was kind of running the marketing and stuff like that for him uh, at that time. And then uh, I started freelancing and I discovered that freelancing for multiple journalism outlets both led to having more experiences, but also led to having more money. Um, so when I was in grad school at Medill and even before that, when I was uh, freelancing in Hawaii and working for the Molokai Times, which is my or former dead newspaper, um, I discovered that, you know, you could really supplement your income if all you had to do was go out there with an idea in the subject area that you knew. Um, and so it just became, it was just kind of de rigueur. Uh, every, every full-time job I've ever had, um, and I've had a few over the course of the years, um, I've been freelancing on the side and I, I, you know, one of the sticking points for me with full-time jobs has always been, I won't shut down my, my side business just to work for a company because it ends up costing me more money to take a job working there than it does uh, if I work in house um, or if I work out of house. So, you know, it, it was just something that kind of happened. The other piece of that was when you graduate from journalism school in 2008, 2009, which is when I did, um, uh, the infamous Medill alumni listserv, which which is one of the reasons you actually go to the school because it's, it's the directory of all graduates of Medill in history of ever, um, was basically silent because there weren't any jobs. Uh, and there weren't any jobs in the sort of super startling way for someone who had assumed, okay, I'm going to the one of the best journalism schools in the country. I did this certificate at Kellogg in media management. I'm a super qualified graduate. They keep telling you that being a super qualified graduate is going to be perfect and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then there's no job. And so you're working on a $50 story or a $100 story for a bunch of little tiny newspapers in Chicago, and you're kind of eking out a living. Um, but it's not all the fun and games that you ever imagined it would be. Um, and after my fellowship at WBEZ expired, and uh, I think we kind of mutually decided not to work together anymore. <laughs> uh, I ended up at NewsHour in one of their um, more interesting roles, working working on social media. Um, and it came to my attention that if I freelanced on the side, you know, I could make twi- quite literally twice as much money as I could uh, sitting on the social media desk. Um, at these hour and mm-hmm. you know it, it just kind of snowballed into this thing where 
one of my skills is networking. So one of the things I do is I know a lot of people who are looking to fill a lot of small, medium, and large-sized jobs. And as I learned how to bid on those jobs and how to be in the right place at the right time, I just kept doing that over and over again. Um, so let's talk about just, the bidding. Ooh, that's, yeah. that's a good one. I want to talk uh-huh. a little bit about, and you were, I kindly asked me to serve on a panel about women making um you know, negotiating and making their worth. Um, how did that go, by the way? I'm so sorry I missed that. Uh, the negotiation workshops always are interesting. We're about to do another one. Sometimes very soon. It's a loaded yeah. word. Interesting. What was it? <laughs> was it mostly um, good? I think, or? I think, you know, I love doing them because I think um, it really helps women. Uh, it helps women to hear from someone else that it's okay if they're super pushy. It's okay if you have terms in your head and you agree to them. It's okay if, you know, you decide to turn down a job because they won't re- re- meet your number. Um, you know, it, it, I think a lot of it is a permission slip and a lot of it is also just teaching women how to uh, ask for what they want and get it. Uh, I think that scares, this scares the bejesus out of people. And even, even me, you know, depending on the relationship I have with a client, I have, it, 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 it can give me shivers. But on the other hand, um, sometimes what you want is something that you have to ask for. And I think learning how to ask for it is really the key. Um, and it, it, it takes a lot of practice. And that's why we do the role plays. That's why we do... Uh, very specific um, activities that are targeted at figuring out how to go into meetings and ask for more money or how when they're offering you the job to negotiate for a higher higher pay level. Um, you know, one of the stories I always tell is about this girl. Uh, I had a team of three people at a, at a news organization. Um, and they ended up being paid small, medium, and large, and it was the reverse of responsibility. So the person being paid the least uh, uh, was a woman who had chosen not to negotiate her salary. Um, so she had the most responsibilities um, and technically the biggest job title and the, and the biggest audience, but she's being paid the least amount of money. Um, and conversely, there was a man in the middle who had negotiated a little bit and felt comfortable doing that. And then there was a woman whose skill was negotiation and who was earning the most money for from that particular budget. And I was just like, you know, the, the girl who didn't take the opportunity to negotiate left $20,000 on the table that could have been hers. Um, and I know she needed it, which I know she also just, she freaked out and she was like, yes, a job offer and signed it immediately without even thinking about it. Um, and that's kind of why I keep doing these negotiation workshops because the women who are in their early to mid twenties or who, uh, who might not see themselves in a position to push just, just don't sometimes. And then I'm like, well, but you, you, you also are complaining to me about not affording subway tickets and mm-hmm. you could have solved this problem. <laughs> yeah. And if you add up all the days that you complain about your subway fare and everything else that you are, you feel quote unquote broke, paying for, you know, the 15 minutes, the 10 minutes that you could have spent on just, you know, it takes not even 10 minutes. It takes 
one minute to ask for more. I mean, the conversation will go on for a little bit longer, but look, you're not going to always get the raise, but I think for me, and I didn't get the raise right away, having just had that conversation and being and just holding my breath and going into the room and doing it, coming out, even though I didn't get the money, I felt so much more relaxed and more confident that next time I could do it better. And I was just going to do it next time. There was no hesitation. So I agree with you. It's a lot of it is just the fear of, of, uh, of getting, of asking, um, which you can't well, blame us for, you know, like we were not, we yeah. haven't been working as long as guys have. We haven't been, we don't feel as powerful as a result because we don't, we've never really been given that power, um, uh-huh. for many years. So it's, it's not natural. It's not innate in, in many people, especially women. And so it does, uh-huh. it is something that needs to just be continuously taught. Yeah. And I think it's also for some people doing like little courses or role plays with their friends or at the very least, or in a more formal Mm -hmm. setting, leads you to to being more brave about a conversation that, yeah, it's five minutes, but you spend like a month building up to it in your head. And there's often all sorts of undercurrents of uh, resentment. So obviously I should have been paid for this, paid this way already, but you guys just aren't paying any attention to me. Um, and to something more complex or complicated uh, where, you know, you're not sure if you really deserve that much money, but, you know, you somehow found out that guy X on your team is, is who has the same job title as you is being paid 20% more than you. And on the one hand, you believe that, that you've seen that chart on the Internet, but you didn't believe it would happen to you because, you know, it wouldn't happen to someone you know, much less you. Um, and then you're looking at that fact and you're like, okay, fine. So now I have to have this really awkward conversation. And uh, if you're someone with any budget responsibilities, you almost feel kind of guilty about it because that's going to take money out of whatever it is that your project uh, needs. But on the other hand, you shouldn't feel guilty about it because you haven't explicitly asking to be held to the same standard as the, the other guy um, is com- completely uh, reasonable. Um, and sort of almost an expectation. I mean, the other way that they could go about it really to make it fair would be to cut the guy's salary. They would never do that because it may be that <laughs> right. the, majority, the majority of people quit. But, you know, that would also be reasonable uh, in an environment if you have an unequal pay situation. True, true, true. Yeah, wouldn't that be – so maybe you don't pay me more, but just cut that guy's salary. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Oh, if we need more budget for this project, then I have, a, I I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> Forget that he negotiated and actually did the, you know, maybe he did ask for it and, uh, you know, earned it that way. But um, yes, it's an ongoing learning curve. Um, Kate, let's, let's wrap here with some so money fill in the blanks. This is how I like to sometimes end the show. Start a sentence. You finish it. First thing that comes to mind. Ready? Sure, go for it. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is uh, pay the seed bill for my horse. Oh, that's so. How long have you been riding horses? I've had my horse since I was seventeen. I'm thirty, so thirteen years with him. But I started when I was about ten, that's uh, so and cute. I do long distance uh, endurance rides uh, across country. Wow. Oh my gosh. All right. How about this? When I, okay. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. Katie Commodore, my 
personal assistant who is a magician and a wonderful human being. Nice. I love my assistant too. She's, I couldn't do my job without her. What's up? One thing you splurge on my biggest splurge. It's a guilty pleasure, but I wouldn't have it any other way is. <laughs> Stuart Weitzman. Yeah. The shoe, the shoe designer. Oh my goodness. Yes. It's kind of one of mine too. I'm trying to, I'm trying to lay low though. I'm trying to wait Me for a too. sale. I don't like, I really don't like the season and I'm hoping it stays this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those things that you never like it. And then it's like, you just, you just do end up liking it because that's how he's so magical with his shoes. You know, at first you're like, oh, I don't know. The, that platform is a little too like, mm, but then. Chunky. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm like, it's too chunky. I clearly don't want those. Yeah. I know what you're talking yeah, about too. End of summer. <laughs> but then I'm like, oh, but Jennifer Aniston's wearing it and she looks so cute. Maybe I should give it a second chance. <laughs> Um, I know that feeling. Okay. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is. Uh, more about taxes and IRAs and savings. Hmm. I think it's okay. We don't tell kids about taxes and IRAs. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Maybe well, I, I should be I started play. my first company when I was 16. I'm oh, <laughs> well then in that case. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I have to remember who I'm talking to. Um, <laughs> when I donate, I like to give to blank because? Uh, depends on the mood. Uh, very often, either animal uh, rescue type groups or environmental groups. So I've worked with a bunch of them. Um, but also these days, women's education and women women power type situations. Awesome. And last but not least, I'm Kate Gardner. I'm so money because? I'm so money because, huh? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. It's okay. Um, You're not the first. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, Well, I it's open-ended. You know, so money, it's like so fabulous, so, uh -huh. Im so financially empowered, so... Uh, okay. You know, it's it's just so money, baby. <laughs> I'm Kate Gardner, and I'm so money because I support women uh, across the spectrum trying to make a name for themselves. I love that. Indeed, you are. Thank you so much, Kate. It's really nice to finally connect a little bit more with you. And congratulations on 30 Under 30. And we look forward to seeing you um, everywhere, uh, including social media. Well, I'll see you again soon sometime in New York. Will do. Have a good one. Peace. You too. Bye-bye. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Kate, her website is kategardner.com. She's also on Twitter, same name, Kate Gardner. All of this information back at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Looking forward to hearing from you about what's on your money mind. And in the meantime, I hope your day is so money. Money.